Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our next Relic Reveal video on our way to Our Lady of the Angels Chapel. I'm super pumped about this one. Jay even prepared me a week ago. He said, prepare your heart, Gormley. Your favorite is coming. St. Thomas Aquinas. Yes, I love this guy. You're going to love this guy. He's a fascinating man. His story hits right in the intersection of church history and European history. It's fascinating. It's weird. It's crazy. I love it. Let's dig in. St. Thomas Aquinas was born in the year 1225. He lived to be about 50 years old, dying in 1275, on his way to a council to help reunite the East and the Western churches. Very sad, tragic that he died, but when he died, they knew he was going to be a saint. He died at this monastery, and they immediately chopped his head off, <laughs> boiled the flesh off his body, and then tried to hide his skull so that they could keep relics for themselves. The Catholic Church is a weird place, but hey, it's a relic story. I thought I'd throw it in at the beginning. Now, why is Thomas so amazing? Why did I pitch? Why am I doing a big sell? This is not clickbait. Thomas Aquinas, in his family, his heritage, the way he lived his life, the religious order that he joined, all of it coalesced to be this, this crazy epochal moment in the history of Christianity. So think about the Imperial Romanum, right? Imperial Rome in the early days of the church, right? Paul had access to all these different cities because he could walk Roman roads. All of this stuff grew up around the Mediterranean. But then up north in Europe come the Visigoths, come the Lombards, come the Germanic tribes that lay waste to a decadent Rome in the 400s. What ended up happening is after the rise of these Germanic tribes throughout Italy, they were barbarian settlers and invaders, right? But over time, this period known as the Dark Ages, when there was no political stability in Western Europe. In Eastern Europe, they still had Constantinople. They still had the reign of Byzantium and all that stuff. But the West fell into the Dark Ages. Now, this matters for us because in the midst of the Dark Ages was born the great movement known as monasticism at least in the West. So you got people like the Augustinian canons and the great Augustinian orders of monasteries, and you have the rise of the Benedictines. These men left the world to build monasteries out in the middle of nowhere, right? Small places where a small community of men or women could live and follow God. But what ended up happening is these places became the centers of stability. Stability led to community, led to prosperity, led to towns. Half the towns in Europe ultimately grew out from the villages that surrounded uh, these monasteries, right? My favorite town in Germany, Munich, means monk, right? So you have all of these fascinating uh, historical evolutionary things that are happening. But the shift goes from the Mediterranean to the middle of the continent of Europe. The Lombard family, the Lombard people settled this area. They were uh, related to the Holy Roman Emperor. But it's fascinating to see how all of this history begins to change because now we've shifted out of the dark ages into the true middle ages. In fact, the high middle ages, we have the rise of Oxford and the university of Paris and university of Cologne, the university system, cities are regrowing new centers of power are emerging trade routes. All of this stuff, stability has come finally to Europe and now comes the rise of something new. The monasteries were built in the middle of nowhere so that they could uh, pursue the Lord away from the world. Then the world grew up after them and around them, but then they were no longer in near or in the city centers. How can we get access to literally hundreds of thousands of people in these cities who are nominally Catholic? This came to the rise of the mendicant orders, the Franciscans and the Dominicans. St. Thomas Aquinas and his family embody these major shifts. Thomas's dad 
is the cousin to the Holy Roman Emperor, the most famous of all, which is a guy named Frederick II. They called him the Stuper Mundi, the wonder of the world. He was a statesman in an age of crusaders, right? The fascinating thing is there was kind of a lot of tension between the Holy Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Emperor in particular, and the Pope, because the Pope up in Northern Italy had the Papal States. So there's all this fighting constantly happening. Well, what happens is, St. Thomas Aquinas' dad teams up with his cousin and they sack one of the strongholds of the papal world, which was Monte Cassino, a Benedictine monastery, one of the most famous in all of uh, in all of Italy. Years later, he would take his uh, youngest son and send him off to Monte Cassino as a way of kind of repairing the damage done to the papacy and all that stuff. So young Thomas goes to Monte Cassino. Now he's a nobleman. My son's not just going to be a monk. My son will be the abbot when he's of age. He's studying all of this stuff right now in Monte Cassino. He begins growing in his intellect, but something crazy happens. We lost Aristotle. I don't know how you, how do you lose a philosopher, Jay? Where'd it go? We lost almost all of the great works of Aristotle. We had a couple that endured, but almost all the great works of Aristotle were lost. In the 400s, the Nestorians were using an Aristotelian framework, had a lot of his books and the copies of his books, and when they were booted from the Roman Empire, they went to Persia. Then you have, in Saudi Arabia, the rise of Islam. I told you, this is at the center of like world history. You got the rise of Islam. Islam comes like a crescent around North Africa and then into Eastern Europe, and when they conquer the Persian Empire and the Persian Empire becomes Muslim, what happens? Aristotle goes from Greek into Arabic. And that's where the works of Aristotle are reintroduced. It was actually illegal, according to papal decree, to study the works of Aristotle. So eventually, St. Thomas, in order to further his education, goes to his dad's cousin's university. There at Naples, he discovers and encounters the works of Aristotle and would become, for the next 800 years, even to today, the greatest commentator on the works of Aristotle. Hands down, no one has surpassed him. Why does this matter? Because here, St. Thomas Aquinas encounters the Dominican order. Mothers, I said this when we talked about St. Anthony, mothers used to lock their sons in their house when a Dominican or a Franciscan friar would walk through the town because so many people were desperate to join him. Thomas, who had never professed uh, Benedictine vows yet, he was too young, about the age of 17, adopted the Dominican order. He would eventually become a Dominican, but not until after his dad had him arrested, thrown up in a tower, his brothers had ambushed him. They tried to dissuade him of his uh, vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience by sending a madam upstairs into the tower, and he chased her out, carved a cross on the door with a hot poker, and then gave his life to the Lord. And his mother would eventually uh, let him out of this prison because, hey, it's better than making him agree with us. It's better than us capitulating to him. And she really did love her son, and it was a weird situation. She lets him out. He escapes and he goes into the Dominican order where eventually he professes. People don't understand. The mendicants were not viewed with high, uh, high esteem. They were viewed as very suspicious, very sneaky, sneaky, as all disruptors are, all innovators, right? What are you doing? We already have the established order. But here they come up, and they do the thing that the world needs for the gospel. So what does Thomas need to do? He needs instruction. Now, here in the University of Cologne, he would meet one of the greatest men in the history of the world, St. Albert the Great, Albertus Magnus. St. Albert the Great was a firebrand. He knew a little bit of everything. Thomas, he re, I mean, just imagine this kid, right? He's the youngest kid. He's been through kind of a lot by the age of 17, 18 years old, right? He's very quiet and he's very big. 
and he's uh, very chonky, right? He's a big duck. He's, he's a big boy. So there Thomas is sitting in class with these Dominicans. They're studying, 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 and he's not saying a word, basically. And then, eventually, it becomes kind of known that this guy, who they mockingly called the dumb ox because he was always quiet and he was so stinking huge, that eventually... Albert the Great saw his genius, and he would say this line that has reverberated down through the centuries, which is, you call him the dumb ox, but soon his bellowing will be heard throughout the whole world. I think that's awesome. Thomas would do so much for the church. He dedicated himself both to the Dominican mendicant life and to a life of the mind, an intellectual life for the sake of the church. He would eventually go to the University of Paris. Now, the important thing is this is when Thomas begins doing a lot of his masterwork that would lay the foundations for literally the, the next 800 years in the life of the church. Thomas is as big a figure, if not bigger, than St. Augustine was for the church fathers for the Western church. So as Thomas begins, he's getting all of these texts from Aristotle that are coming through the Muslim world, through the Ottoman Empire, into Spain, into Sicily, but they don't come alone. They come with their Muslim and Jewish interpreters. The Jewish one is Rabbi Moses Maimonides, and the Muslim one is Averroes and Avicenna. Those are the two really big guys. And it's fascinating because these men bring in their interpretive tradition alongside it. Averroes was interesting. He tried to play both cards of philosopher and theologian in the Muslim world. The Muslim world became very skeptical of Aristotle as he represented reason without divine revelation. And so it's fascinating because you have this Averroism that begins to creep into Catholicism. And this Averroism essentially like, okay, this is what philosophy can clearly demonstrate as true, but the Bible says this, so they're both true. Right? And so this became known as this weird Averroism. And Thomas, the only time Thomas gets nasty, Thomas is so cool, so calm, so collected. Thomas, I mean, he restated his opponent's arguments better than they could state them. That's how he operated always. The only time when it ever creeps in is when he's debating people who are the, called the Latin Averroists, who are like, no, there's two truths. There's the truth of theology and then the truth of the world. They said philosophy today, maybe we would say the natural sciences. And he just destroys them with essentially a teaching that has become so core to the Catholic Church, which is God, who is truth itself, cannot contradict himself, whether by the book of nature or by the book of Revelation. Truth cannot contradict truth. We just don't understand it correctly. So his writings take on the form of these very debates that they would have. You start off with the strongest objections possible. And then he presents an authoritative argument, drawing on a church father, a philosopher, whomever. And then he goes through and he lays out the thesis of his statement. And then one by one demolishes the objections. He was in the middle of incredible, not just debates with people who were alive at the university, but with debates with the church fathers and different philosophers down through time. The Summa Theologiae, which is his greatest work, it's his mastery summary of theology, and it's like 2,500 pages, so hey, the word summary is a little loose there. But when you go through it, right, you actually start, you realize, like, you can just come up to different things and plug in more objections. It was supposed to be like a dialogue, right? Plato, the great Greek philosopher, had these wonderful dialogues. This is like a scholastic, rigorous, uh, objectified form of those arguments. Here's the, here's the objection, here's the statement, here's the contrary, here's the explanation, and here's my response. 
It's meant to be open. So what happens? Well, Thomas gathers all of this and this approach, this style, and the Dominican order is like, oh, we need you. We need you. So they begin. he begins walking all over Europe because the Pope, Pope would call him, the Dominicans would call him. He eventually would help craft one of my favorite experiences, which is the Feast Day of Corpus Christi. He helped to organize the feasts with the Pope. He wrote many of the prayers that we pray when we do things like Eucharistic adoration and all this stuff. And it's amazing that this theological mind, this philosophical mind, could just crush poetry as well. And it is beautiful. His prayers are beautiful. His poems are beautiful. And they are solid works. Here's a funny story. I love this. So the Dominicans were invited in Paris to go to the court of St. Louis, right? The king of France, he's that the town St. Louis is named after, right? So they're in the court of St. Louis, right? And all the friars are there and they're in his court and they're all talking and they're having this great feast. And Thomas isn't paying attention to anything or anyone. And slowly people see his hand raise up and he's just staring up to the ceiling. And he was a big guy. Remember, he was a big guy. They actually would cut a little uh, little semicircle out of his table so he could sit closer to it. Um, he, would, he was sitting there and he would raise his hand and he said, and he smashes his hand down. And he exclaims like, that answers the arguments of the Cathars or something. Like he's engaging in a heresy dispute in his own head and is refuting them as he goes on. The king, it was very uncourtly to do that, but the king said, listen, okay, Thomas, go, take your bread, go over there, and I'm going to get some reporters and they'll just record everything you say. Like, let's capture this. It's important what you just did, but you should leave now. <laughs> so that was him always thinking, always churning. He would do all of his writing beforehand staring at the tabernacle. In fact, when he couldn't understand a concept, how to solve a problem, he would gently tap his head or, or bang his head against the tabernacle, begging Christ for wisdom and illumination. One of the most beautiful things is before he finishes the great Summa Theologiae, um, he would be granted a unique and singular vision from Christ. He looks up at a cross while praying. Brother Reginald, one of his best friends, overheard this. And Christ said, what do you ask? You've written well of me. What do you ask? And the great line that Thomas says, nothing but you, O Lord, nothing but you. What, what will you have? I'll give you anything. Nothing but you, O Lord. Apparently, he would tell Brother Reginald that he had such an amazing vision of what awaits those who die in the graces of Christ that all of his writings was but straw compared to what he held. To what he held. What he, <laughs> compared to what he held. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Thomas, you are going to disown me. All of my writings are but straw compared to what I've seen. What can we draw from the life of St. Thomas Aquinas? Number one, he was not afraid to engage his culture. Number two, he studied and learned his culture. It's the idea of you have a newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. You read the times and then you read the eternities. He understood that to change the world, you had to engage the world, but not on the world's terms, always on the terms of the gospel. Thomas lived what he preached and he preached what he lived. He walked humbly in the path of the Lord. Now, he also put his full capacities. Being humble doesn't mean you don't do anything, right? He did everything for the glory of God, meaning his considerable intellect he dedicated to the pursuit of the truth inside the church. Thomas built a bridge between faith and reason. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate it when people attack me. I don't know about you, but I hate it when people undermine me or object to the things I say. This is not a normal thing to actually like it. What Thomas taught us in his disputed questions, in the manner of the way he lived his life and dealt with 
people that we could call enemies, was he did it through justice and charity. You might know something I don't know. So I'm going to let you talk and I'm not going to take you for granted or what we're talking about for granted or what I believe for granted. I might be wrong. I like this phrase, strong opinions loosely held. Thomas Aquinas had his views, argued his points, but he listened. I like to shut people down and not listen because it makes it easier for me to hold my precious beliefs. Thomas did not believe that. He didn't straw man his opponent's arguments. He didn't ignore their arguments. He made them as strong as possible before he responded. And you know what happened? Those people stopped being opponents and they started becoming friends. That's the important thing. One, I mean, we live in a culture that is hyper-divided. Subdivisions are divided within those subdivisions. Here's the deal. Thomas Aquinas can lay that path as an example for us to be faithful. Also, bring your problems to the tabernacle. If you haven't been in the church in a long time, like you haven't been to Mass, then at the very least, come to church during the day. Sit in front of our blessed Lord in the blessed sacrament. Be at peace. Bring your problems, struggles, and trials before the Lord. Read his prayers. I would encourage everyone to get the book of St. Thomas Aquinas written by G.K. Chesterton. It is worth your time to read Chesterton's view. I love it. It is amazing. So, brothers and sisters, Thomas can teach us a lot, not just from the Summa, but from his way of life. He would write tons of works. He would have three secretaries that he would dictate three separate essays to while writing a fourth. Totally different topics. Can you imagine that? That's how he was able to produce an incredible amount of written works. The guy was amazing, but more than that, he was a saint. And you and I can be saints too as we imitate St. Thomas Aquinas as he imitated Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are on the road to relics. More relics, all the relics on our way to Our Lady of the Angels Chapel. We just hit number 18. That means we are two-thirds of the way done. We got 27 relics total. 26 of them are saints, baby. And we are going to go through this, and I'm loving this. The groundbreaking is coming up. Lent is coming up. Let the saints be your guides through this year. May God bless you. God love you. And stay classy.